Hello, we're live. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, great to see familiar faces and welcome new listeners. Uh, first up, Leaf is going to give an epic rant about some swag. Yeah, we just this is just becoming a, a podcast of callbacks. And so last time Travis ranted about swag, this time I get to rant about swag. I was trying to send out a nice end of year team gift. Uh, we had a set budget from our company to get some stuff made, found some, some jackets. A lot of my team is based in the Pacific Northwest. So I was like, oh, we'll get some nice waterproof jackets that me and the other LA based person can wear twice a year, but I actually don't have one. So that was good. One very hard to find uh, a low minimum, uh, everything like Travis encountered. It was like, I don't have 12 people on my team. Don't want 12 jackets. Finally found one. And then as I was checking out, I just got epically ticket mastered. It was first, it was a price. And then it was like, oh, you have to pay a bunch of extra taxes. And I was like, all right, whatever. I'm kind of used to that. Uh, it's over budget, but not by enough that I really care. And then after that, they're like, oh, actually, we're going to charge you to ship all of these individually. And I was like, well, what was the point of this being a corporate swag purchasing place? If you can't do a group order where I'm not the middleman, like I don't want to mail all this stuff out. And then so at the very last Second, the 11th hour is like, oh, boom, another $80 of fees and processing. And at that point, I was I was too defeated. I was like, whatever. Everyone already said they like the jackets. I think they're going to be sick. I saw somebody at my family Christmas wearing the same jacket. So that kind of validated that we had picked a good one. And so I was like, whatever, send it. If the finance team is like, you went over budget, like I'll just pay for it. But this is such a problem. Did, uh, did, I, mention, did I mention Squad Locker before? So Squad Locker is built for sports teams. And so if you want to get whatever Under Armour with your team name on it and a number, like they're they're good at that. But uh, another founder told me that you can basically just use that for your company swag. So they'll stand up a store for you and you can put a bunch of stuff in it. And then anybody that wants to can just order stuff and you can even like send them a gift card to do it and they'll ship directly to them and they'll do orders of one. So it's really easy. Uh, I don't know why there's not like a squad locker for just general swag ordering. It's so much better. Yeah, there's clearly a gap in the market. So somebody should go and start up a little swag store. Travis, didn't you use swag.com once where like you, you can send your team a, a link, they can go in and order it and then you just pay the bill and they ship everything. That's squad I locker. No, you, I thought when you were at Netflix, you did something with swag.com hmm, where you could like, I don't know if the minimums are low, but, but if you should always order extras, I, Travis, you remember our first swag at Netflix? The shoes? When we got there. No, no. The, the jackets. Oh, the cloud security jackets. Yeah. yeah. Travis is very like in your face. Like we just, <laughs> we're like two weeks in. He goes to Jason is like, yo, so how do we get some of those dope jackets? <laughs> and then sure enough, he had two left. They were the sizes that Travis and I both wore. And then like, I felt bad because Craig was like, started the same day as us. No jacket. Screw oh, the yeah. wheel gets the grease. I definitely pilfered stuff when I showed up at segment. It was like, oh, that jacket hasn't been made in a year. Found the last one. That's mine. This was a little different because it was like a set budget per person and I was already over. And so if I ordered two extras, like, well, <laughs> why'd you do that? Yeah. You needed it for your headcount in 2023. Yeah. That would be the same number as it is this year. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So now with the future of next year, hindsight, we're going to go back and see who's actually good at predicting the future since it is almost new year's. I want three predictions from each of us and then we'll just go round table. So, uh, I'll say, will give me a prediction. And right. then, I'm, I'm not looking forward to watching this episode next December to see how bad we were at predicting things. 
but I, I predict more cloud breaches in the same ways, pu- public things or whatever. I, I might talk about those things later on in this episode. Um, I predict chat GPT doesn't actually solve our problems. And third one, I predict, yeah, not enough people in the security industry still. So hiring is really tough. Those are all, that's sand, those are sandbag predictions. Sandbag? Yeah. 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 All right. More cloud security and more industry shortage. Come on. <laughs> you can do better than that. Give me some, give me some out Maybe there. We ones. should just have one good, one good one. Yeah. Three is too hard. One's good one. This is going to be one of those things when like you predict a company gets breached and then when they get breached, they're going to come back and <laughs> you were involved. I don't know. Come back to me. I'll think about it. I predict, uh, I predict ransomware will actually decrease. I think that we've been seeing an upswing for a long time. And it's actually, you know, the, a lot of the folks that are pulling off these things are actually pretty technically sophisticated. I actually think that they'll go focus their effort elsewhere, uh, either on low end kind of scamming stuff or higher end um, attacks. I, I think that this kind of like middle end where we have ransomware is going to reduce finally. I'm happy to be wrong about that, though. I don't know if I agree. I think I think almost the opposite, uh, not specifically maybe about ransomware, but I do. And this is a little bit like two thirds in a lie in terms of predictions or like I'll be wrong about two <laughs> things and maybe right about one. I do think that we'll see a lot more opportunistic breaches. And so like just a lot more broader based on what we're seeing right now. Uh, I do also think that the continued war in Ukraine are going to showcase a lot more cyber <laughs> If you may, in terms more cyber, of, full mil- spectrum cyber, full spectrum cyber. <laughs> that's what we should have named the podcast. <laughs> we should have, but I think that's trademarked by uh, whoever was it that did the original. Uh, Are you predicting an, an attack on critical infrastructure? Yes, and everything written in Scala. Please, not the Scala one. That's good, Leaf. What do you got? I think we're going to see more companies adopt pre-built security components for the the products that they build. I think we've seen a, a lot of companies kind of show up in the last like year or two that are going to just take care of like auth and audit logging and like a bunch of the annoying security stuff that like most companies don't want to spend time on and like don't do a good job of. I think we're going to start to see a lot of companies just like buy stuff that kind of solves those problems for them. That's I think cool. that that's true. Yeah. Um, I do think that the current situation that we find ourselves in in the tech industry as a whole, even though we haven't really stopped hiring in security broadly, but we are seeing impact on security jobs across the industry. And I think a lot more companies are going to focus outward uh, to hire companies to solve their security problems as opposed to bringing people in to do it in-house. This is kind of an easy sandbaggy, like Will-style prediction, but uh, economy sucks. So we're going to, I think it's going to suck for at least a good part of next year. And so we're going to obviously see less companies going public and that's going to drive a lot of M&A. So particularly in the early earlier stage of security, there's going to be a lot of consolidation. Uh, and I think um, I'm seeing great companies coming out now, but yeah, I think that a lot of the smaller players that aren't, that can't stand on their own are going to get snapped up next year and they're going to get snapped up at pretty good prices for the buyer. And I really hope that we lose like 70% of the security vendor industry. <laughs> because most of that is snake oil and they are not going to be able to last through uh, the bad times, I think. Yeah. I was going to predict like at least three, three to five more identity governance solutions. seems like there's just so many of them now that seems to be a hot topic. Uh, I was actually going to say, I, I predict like a big company like Okta having another support problem and someone actually being really impacted by it. Yep. Like, yeah. be, it, be it purchase access or, or what, right. It seems to be the, the weak link these days. Yep. Supply chain, everything. Cool. With that, let's, uh, let's discuss some stories. So first up, 
here's a fun little intro story. So this is a, a description of two new ways that uh, attacks are happening. And these are ransom attacks, despite me predicting that these are going to go down. Uh, we ha we'll have the link in the show notes, but uh, one is a group called Venus. And what they do is they target executives at public companies, and then they get into your computer. They go and they modify your Outlook file to make it look like you're doing insider trading. So they'll actually write an email that you didn't write, and they'll have files on your computer that look like they were created at the at the appropriate time. And so the researcher that was taking a look at this said, it's not forensically sound, like it wouldn't hold up in court or whatever, but that's not the point. The point is, is that the executive sees, oh, I've got this insider, insider trading allegation against me and then freaks out and pays it. I thought that one was pretty interesting, um, very unique. I haven't heard of anything like this happening. And it seems like the sort of thing that if it happened at, at, like enough that you would hear about it. So I thought that one was interesting. The other one mentioned in the article is a group called CLOP that attacks healthcare providers. So they upload basically a file that has something malicious in it. And the idea is that the doctor, before they meet with you for your remote telehealth visit, they will look at the thing, detonate the file, and then you compromise their machine and probably pivot through the health infrastructure. Uh, I think both of these are like pretty interesting kind of novel attack vectors. Uh, the final thing from the article that that was interesting is the biggest reason that people pay a ransom, aside from I don't have backups, is they don't factor in how long it's going to take to restore a backup. So they're like, oh yeah, it's no problem. I have backups. And then they look and there's petabytes and they're like, oh, this is going to take three months. So it's easier for me to just pay. Yeah. You need the reverse of whatever the Amazon snowball or whatever that one is, where they just ship a truck to you for sure. That's like a, what was that snowmobile? Isn't that what they call it? The, uh, the 18 living. Was that an actual thing? I thought that was a hoax. All right. You're talking about snow crash. <laughs> Snow something. I don't know. Definitely. Well, snow crash is kind of like what's I guess happens here when you open the file, <laughs> your computer just gets blown up. Also great movie, by the way. So part of the reason for Never me predicting that ransom would go down is, I mean, these attacks are pretty creative and not the sort of thing that you can really scale. And in the article, they mentioned that ransomware groups are having a hard time getting paid. So I, I think that, you know, generally... A lot of folks work with insurance. I think insurance generally says you can't pay ransom because they have they have stake at scale. So they're going to say you can't pay it. And now less and less people are actually paying. So I do think that there is strong counter pressure down to for the ransomware groups to adjust their methods. Didn't they just uh, pass a law in Australia uh, against paying for ransoms? Oh, that's a good idea. So it's actually illegal to do it? Yeah, I think so. And I, I don't know if it's gone through or if it just was a proposal. Uh, so I have to check that afterwards. But I, oh. I do think I did see quite a lot of stir about it. Interesting. Travis, uh, is targeting executives similar to like the SMS stuff that you also have been sending out messages to your employees? Did you get one? No. Oh, yeah. But so I, I want to know, like, <laughs> of, are the, of the five people that you know, is, is that all your employees? No. Yeah. So I got this, uh, I, I got within a span of 10 minutes yesterday, I got five different people messaging me, uh, three employees and two people I work with closely. And they all have the exact nice. same message from the exact same number, which is one of these stupid, Hey, it's me, the CEO. I need you to give me like <clears throat> gift cards or whatever. It's like, I don't know who falls for this shit, but I mean, they're still running it a lot. And what was interesting about this is that, I mean, the ones I heard, they were all people that were really connected to me. And also usually these things have terrible grammar and English and whatever. And this actually read legitimate aside from their saying it's me, Travis McPeak, which nobody would ever say to any of these people. Uh, it was, it was pretty legit. So I was surprised. 
I, I do think though that things like oh it's gonna look shady because it's misspelled or whatever is like very much in the past. With with uh, Chat GPT, of course. I want to know if uh, Chat GPT could write me a text message in the form of Travis McPeak asking for gift cards. With enough input data, I think it probably could. I bet it yeah. could do it really well right now. Yeah, it needs to start. Yo, doggy, I need some bourbon. Can you send me some? <laughs> I love it. Okay, uh, next up, we have LastPass. Anna. Yeah, we're going to talk about LastPass. And so probably like one of the worst things that can happen to, I think, a security company, but also a security company that directly engages with end users. So LastPass got breached back in August, or they reported they got breached back in August. And that was reported as a sort of source code and technology theft breach, more so than anything else. Um, But after that, it seemed like this led to a targeted attack where an employee got breached and that gave attackers access to a lot of backup storage of end users' vaults. And so at this point, uh, attackers could breach vaults by trying to crack uh, master pass- master passwords for people's people's vaults. And so there's like a ton of issues with this, right? There's been a long debated and reported issues with LastPass uh, and their very targeted sort of encryption strategy. Uh, they don't, don't encrypt all the data in your vaults. Most of the data and all the notes and fields in your vaults are not encrypted. The notes field actually specifically is encrypted, but things like the URLs are not. And so attackers having all this context now has the lists of all the URLs, which means that they can target high impact, high reward URLs and accounts. LastPass also historically has not engaged particularly well with the security or the password cracking community. And so they they don't respond well to vulnerabilities unless it's Tavis. And just like everybody else, like it's severe by default if it's Tavis. And they just aren't responding well to, to bugs at all. Their interfaces have been vulnerable to so many things over the past couple of years. This is, I think, the seventh or eighth really big beat breach in the past 10 years. And I think, frankly, as a specifically like a security product for end users, this is extremely problematic and I don't understand why anybody uses LastPass anymore. I just, uh, over the break, I just went through the effort to migrate my whole family. They, some of them had been using LastPass. I got one password gift certificates for everyone and actually had walked them through the setup. You didn't just pay for a family account and give it to them for free? Nope. I got my own one password. I don't want anyone else using it. Yeah, you split, you split it out. It's like if you're running a business. I've got it for everyone in my family. Like, here, mom, here's your one password. Start using it, please. I also yep. do that. But I'm really disappointed. I keep my passwords in the URL field because <laughs> I figured if you're like exfiltrating passwords, you're not going to look at the URL field. So you're saying they're not encrypted. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do think that the unencrypted URLs, like it really helps you target like which master passwords you take the time to break. Because if you're like, oh, that one says FBI.gov, it's like, that one might be interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Or or Coinbase. (laughs) Exactly. Everybody's crypto wallets. I think for this one, I'm less concerned about business usage and more so about like high value targets. And we've already seen people report a lot of their wallets being, being emptied, maybe unrelated, maybe not. We also don't know how long they might have, a- have a- had access to this because LastPass has, have, haven't actually communicated how long ago they believe that they were breached uh, because they probably don't know. It sounds like they upped the PBK DF2 iterations over time. And some of the really old ones were like 5,000 iterations. So with good hardware going after targeted, if you weren't using a really strong master password, then it's going to be, you're probably going to get breached. And then, and then it's unclear, like, what do you do? So you you have to like rotate every password that you had in there and then yeah. also migrate your password manager. That's tough. It takes days. Yeah, days. 
I mean, if if I was a competitor, I would probably offer some sort of easy to use way of you know simply migrating. But well, there is an think... import export. Yeah, but that I mean, simpler ways to like rotate your passwords uh, yeah. within within your um, password manager. If anybody at Bitwarden or uh, uh, one password is listening, then that's tough though, right? Because uh, isn't like as a password manager, one of the things you want to say is like, we just never see your unencrypted password. As if I'm brokering password rotations on your path, I at some point have your password. So I think that's like, it's a, a great convenient feature, but like I could see a lot of people be like, well, this makes the security even worse than it is. Or I don't know. I saw, I saw something on Twitter about uh, someone asking, how about we have a standard, which yeah. uh, all of the sites use that makes it so that you can just rotate your password this way. And if you had that, you know, some kind of like an API or integration or something, then you could just do it on the client side. You can say, I request this password to be rotated. And then what one password or Bitwarden or whatever could just broker that on your behalf, like rotate all of them. I want to yeah. go by a new domain password rotation all, all the sites are going to adopt it like SSO and then they're going to charge you extra for it. I would, I would pay. <laughs> Oh, I, I think a lot of people would, but um, yeah, it's interesting. I think rather like than scam, do that, no one does it. We just need to move to WebAuthn, obviously. Like, just get rid of passwords. They're so shitty. Yeah, one hundred percent. But I, I do hate it though when these things happen. Even if like I have not been a user of LastPass for a long time because they've had a lot of security issues, but also because their usability is pretty poor. But it, it really sucks when you have such a wildly adopted end user tool. Again, we have parents who use it, like the broader population, because they might not even migrate to something else. They might just stop using it because they got burned once. And so I think I, I get really pissed every time a breach is a security vendor. But like when it's infrastructure, I sort of understand it a little bit more, but I have a higher, I guess, expectation of people who develop security tooling for the broader population, because when this happens, it really hurts all of us. Totally. Yeah. Cause you might've spent years convincing somebody to use a password manager in the first place. And then this happens and they're like, Oh, that was pointless. Well, yeah. And the impact to the end user that's not in tech, you know, they hear about all this stuff. Like my mother-in-law is afraid to use the internet. <laughs> She'll just like get an email and she's like, is this okay? Like, can I open this? Can I even look at it? You know, like that kind of stuff. I just, I don't want anxiety for normal people. It shouldn't be that hard to, to use technology. I think jumping off the web off end comment you made, I didn't really see details about how this happened, but I would suspect that because a developer's account got breached that web off end probably would have helped them. So if anybody is, you know, thinking about org planning for 2023 or hasn't done some groundwork to figure out how much work it would be for your org to move to web and everywhere that's feasible, like definitely take a look at that because it, it is very, 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 very helpful. Definitely. All right. Moving on. Apple security leaf. You're up. Cool. Yeah. So Apple announced a slew of security improvements. There's a couple different ones in here. There's iMessage contact key verification. So this is like, you know, if Anna were to text me from a new device or somebody on Anna's account were to text me, I would get a little warning in iMessage that's like, you know, hey, this is an unrecognized device. I think this is probably pretty similar to like what Signal shows um, that everybody ignores. And this is probably pretty helpful if you're like a journalist or somebody that, you know, is likely to be targeted by this kind of thing. And like, you know, it is worth building things for those types of people. My guess is the average person will just be like, whatever, Will got a new phone. Congrats on, you know, the iPhone 13 or whatever. My personal conspiracy theory, since I know that this group loves conspiracy theories, is that this is something that got prioritized by Apple to increase the delta between what they could or couldn't do with normal text messages. 
as a way to defend, Hey, we, we need iMessage to be its own platform because we can do all of this security stuff that we can't do with Android because we have no way to guarantee who's sending it. Who knows if there's any, <laughs> any truth to that, but yeah, that's, that's one of my theories. The second thing is uh, hardware token support for Apple IDs. So again, I think this is something that a lot of people probably won't use. Um, I saw in an article that Apple actually has 95% 2FA usage, which is pretty impressive, especially for a consumer tool. But again, celebrities, journalists, politicians, like definitely makes sense to buy a hardware token for your Apple ID. And then the last one, which I think is probably the most interesting from a discussion standpoint is the end-to-end encryption for a bunch of new stuff um, in iCloud. I actually didn't know that photos weren't end-to-end encrypted. I kind of just assumed that Apple had already done some of this stuff. But yeah, iCloud backups, health data, keychain, there's a bunch of stuff. Um, It is opt-in because if you lose access to your devices, you might lose access to just all of your information. But um, yeah, I thought this was the one that was probably the most interesting to discuss. Quick thing about iMessage. I had no idea what a big deal iMessage is in the sense that, you know, why do you use an iPhone? I saw a thread about this on Twitter and the top, like one of the top reasons that kept coming up is because iMessage. And one of the top reasons for that is because, oh, I hate it when someone has a green bubble. Yeah. Like, I, realize, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I was just going to ask, like, what do you do when a friend gets in a group text and they're the green phone? That you don't, you move to Signal and you were in Signal all the time. But like in normal group chats that are not security people, uh, they actually, <laughs> like, they have to, they had to figure it out differently because it, like, it doesn't really work. Like the the cross platform communications are just terrible when a majority has iPhones. Do you think? They, then, do you think Android users get uh, annoyed when they they read like Travis McPeak like blah 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 blah? Oh yeah, but there's so many more iPhone users. I feel like the greenies are a relatively low population. I didn't. I didn't know very it was different in the U.S. though. Oh yeah, because yeah. a lot of other places use other like chat apps like WhatsApp or whatever, much more predominantly. So this is really like a very US centric problem. Yeah. Like you said, the leaf, I assume that a lot of the end to end encryption stuff was already done for iCloud, but yeah, I mean, this is a nice counterpoint to the previous story where it's like, you have this big consumer platform, everyone uses it. They kind of just rely on it to be good. Apple's continuing to march forward and last pass is obviously losing a lot of trust by not doing it well. So yeah, this is the positive point. Yes. Yeah, so, so it was keychain encrypted or is that an opt-in? I think that, I think all of this stuff is, well, there's a difference. I think this stuff is probably already encrypted, but it's not end-to-end encrypted using something derived from like your, your password and your device. So yeah, I think you yeah. would have to opt into that, but I'm not 100% sure. I think maybe where there's some interesting discussion here is the balance between privacy and safety. Like we've seen a lot of debate over the last like few years about, you know, the FBI says this is going to hamper investigations into cybercrime and violence against children and terrorism. And, you know, we need lawful access for, for X, Y, and Z. So I, I do think that this is not like a super clear cut, like advancement for, for some groups. Well, the other thing is, uh, is the general population ready to keep and manage a strong key? Because if you have, you have a terrible password that you remember it, no problem. You're not going to get locked out or whatever. But if you have a really strong pseudo random key for iCloud, you can totally lose that. And Apple is not going to be able to help you. It's end end encrypted. So if you lose your master key, then you're done. So uh, this is like one of the general problems, I think, with people at scale trying to use these kind of solutions is you have to be really good at key management and key management is hard, even for people that do this professionally. Just put it in last pass. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, moving on. Next up, uh, Will, public cloud breaches. Yeah, 2022 recap uh, brought to you by, I guess, Datadog with some guest commentary from Houston Hopkins and Rami McCarthy. So top four uh, groups of breaches for 2022, uh, exposed static long-lived cloud credentials. Bet you would have never guessed that one. Elasticsearch instances exposed to the internet. Really just data stores on the internet with no authentication. So S3, RDS, you name it. Uh, and then, you know, my favorite, SSRF. Once again, steal cloud credentials and, you know, reap the benefits of, uh, you know, cloud APIs. Uh, I don't know if y'all have ever heard me talk. Uh, I know Travis has, but like my favorite thing about the cloud is the APIs. And my like most fearful thing of the cloud is the APIs. Because like one one wrong key in one wrong location could be a really, really bad day. Yeah. So along with credentials, this one's interesting because, you know, everyone thinks GitHub, which is one. But there are a lot of PyPy packages found this year with keys. I, I forget the... There was, there, was a, there was like a security company too that had a key and uh, it had been there. It was like their admin key for, it had been there for years, but they're starting to look in everywhere looking for keys now. So PyPy was a big one. Obviously Android packages, Android apps, they're decompiling those and finding embedded keys. Uh, and then, you know, lots of malicious packages with PyPy and NPM targeting cloud credentials on local boxes. So install the, the wrong package, whatever cloud keys you have in your environment or in your .aws credential file, you're gone. I think, I think the one interesting thing here is with GitHub, you have the GitHub token scanning project, but not every company that uses that or like says they're a partner in that does things the same. Like an AWS key, you commit it within 30 seconds, it's revoked. And AWS will actually put a policy on the IAM user that the key is attached to that you can't even remove you have to delete the user and start all over. They just render the key useless. Uh, Google will send you an email to the owner of the project, but they do nothing about the validity of the key. I forget what Azure does. So everyone does it different. Um, so I think it will always, uh, will, will continue to be a problem as long as there's not automatic revocation. So that, that was a big one. Exposed data stores. I think it's both Elastic, RDS, as well as public S3 buckets. You know, I think the S3 bucket public stuff has been around for a long time. I think the most interesting ones are is it it affects the companies that you wouldn't think it would affect. So Microsoft was actually affected by this with a public Azure blob store uh, earlier this year, uh, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, and then, of course, SSRF, you know, AWS was last to the finish line with a metadata service that could prevent SSRF. Arguably, I think their solution is the most robust. If you compare it to Azure or Google that just wants a header, because uh, they're looking at like time to live and, and a bunch of other things on the, on the actual packet itself. Weren't you in AWS's ear on the metadata service stuff? Is that why yeah, I've been, I've been talking to them so, <laughs> for so long about this stuff? But, That's an uh, understatement. <laughs> the, but the, the one problem with it, right, even though they have the most robust solution, it's not on by default. And so even for brand new accounts, V1 is still the default server. And so they're saying something like, 93% of all EC2s deployed still don't use the new metadata service, which is similar to Google had a problem for a while. I think it's still the, the problem where they had the new version. So Google long ago didn't have a header required. They quickly moved to a header required, but they never disabled the old path. And so you'd find a, a server and then you just do the old path and it would still work. Where at least with AWS, you could turn those things on and off. I'm not exactly sure if you can do that on Google or not, but it's pretty... Uh, I mean, it's it's the same thing, right? Same trick, different day. Uh, it seems to be the same common problems. You know, if only there was a company out there that would make things easier. 
to deploy infrastructure securely. But, you know, I think the big takeaway that I saw, uh, and I'm not going to say who said it, you can read the article in the show notes, but, you know, it's taking these really large incidents to make any real positive change in, in security of these systems. So I think that's, that's a, like, the biggest takeaway for me is like it, with Capital One, it took a Capital One breach and then all of a sudden AWS had this new metadata service they came out with. Not saying they're connected or anything, but it's like, wow, we need to do better. Quick, uh, quick side story for anyone that doesn't know Will and his involvement in this. So we get there to Netflix in 2017. I think this is like early 2018. And Will was like, wow, this metadata thing is ridiculous and proposed a solution. I believe Google adopted your proposed solution pretty quickly. Will, correct me anywhere I'm wrong, but proposed to AWS... They were a little bit slow moving. So Will started cutting PRs to open source AWS packages and just said, support the header if you'd like to pass it and got a ton of those PRs adopted and and had spoken everywhere about basically this metadata problem. And then went to Capital One like three months before the giant breach, um, just, you know, very strange timing for it. Um, but yeah, and then I, I believe, you know, nothing from Will, but I believe that this Capital One big issue was a major trigger for AWS finally, like really pushing this forward. Yeah, it was, you know, it was one of those things where, you know, we kept, I kept trying to get someone to, to change things. They didn't want the actual header edition. They thought that might break things, who knows. And so I built a the proxy and started just like inspecting traffic. And I noticed that most of the SDKs from AWS didn't even use user agents or just use the default, like Python, the Boto SDK used Python requests. And so the, the user agent that the metadata service would see was a, a request default user agent. So I started just cutting PRs to all the SDKs setting user agents to something predictable that you could actually expect, knowing that with an SSRF attack, it's really hard to actually control the user agent portion. Uh, and so like I got the Ruby team to adopt it first. And then I took that merged PR to the the Java team and then they adopted it. And then I had to do Java SDK two. And so I just kept saying, oh, well, like Ruby and Java is doing this. You don't want to be left behind. And then Python, you know, the Bo team was like probably the most difficult out of all of them because they wanted to do things their own way. And they, they didn't want to adopt the same pattern that all the other SDKs had because the Golang SDK actually had one. And so I just used that. And so now there's like one's pattern and then Boto 3's pattern in the SDKs. And I assume they're still there. I'm not really sure now that they had the, the actual header value that, that comes across, but yeah, it took forever. And then the, the Capital One thing was interesting because like a month into working, we found the breach that happened three months prior to my joining. But then Krebs wrote, Capital One should have hired Willis sooner. And then I became like the I, the I told you guy. And <laughs> I told you so guy internally. Like, I remember one of the VPs asked me, so how does it feel to be the I told you so guy? I was like, feels like I should leave. <laughs> <laughs> that's such weird timing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you join the company and then get them hacked, I, I don't know if that's, if you should stay employed. I'm not saying that with you. But I'm curious though, because you can't you can't be everywhere, Will. And that story to me, like it's yes, it's a lot of heroics and you pushing through really relevant and important security features across like the internet infrastructure. And that shouldn't have to be the case, right? So looking at this list and particularly I'm curious in your perspective here, having been so deeply personally engaged with all of these things, one, like how do we bring forth these really important like updates or mitigations in our cloud providers without going in and pushing PRs ourselves, right? Because that's just not, that doesn't make sense. Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's incredibly difficult, especially at a huge cloud provider like Amazon or Google or, or you name it, right? Everyone's thinking about what, are, are we going to break something? 
right? They want to, you know, not affect any customers, or at least a 95 percentile or whatever they strive for. You know, they, they're slow to move in a lot of cases. They'll say, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And, but you're having to sell it over and over again because that person moves on. And so you lose your champion internally. It's kind of the same thing when Travis was working on Repo Kid and we were talking about like what's actually logged in CloudTrail, which led me to writing Trailblazer. When I, I could go ask the CloudTrail team like, Hey, you can literally see everybody's account. Can't you just tell me everything that you know is logged because you've seen it at least once? And they would never do it. And so we had that, that what was it? A list in S3 or something of like every API call we've ever seen logged in CloudTrail. And then if you're Travis, you, <laughs> you use my packages blindly with an admin role and then start getting billed for AWS Shield. <laughs> Such a terrible time. So yeah, Will made this this giant list of calls that you can make. And I went and executed all of them to actually log the call. And one of them turns out to enable the Shield Advanced service. And if you make that API call, you incur a $36,000 bill immediately. So I did that on my personal account. <laughs> Got hit with a $36,000 bill and freaked out. Uh, that was epic. Yeah, there's no, there's no like, are you sure or force or anything like that? And you can make the API call. So yeah. Uh, today I learned that you can make a $36,000 API call on your personal account, just screwing around. I guess the most important thing to have enabled on your personal account is a cost, uh, ceiling. <laughs> well, I don't even think that would matter. Cause like, I don't think it's going to say you, you subscribe to it for a 12 month period. So they're going to bill you 1500 bucks a month plus whatever other fee or 3,500 a month or whatever it was. It was something dumb. Like, but yeah, yeah no confirmation. Nice. They rolled it back. <laughs> but if you had a cost ceiling on the account of like a thousand, do you think it, the API call would have still succeeded? Uh, I bet it did. I bet it would. Because <laughs> I bet the cost ceiling is uh, looking at like on a 24 hour basis. And by then you've already been charged. It's a cron job somewhere that just checks for like, yeah, reactive cron job. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, so back to your point on it, like, I, I don't know. But even if you know, the problem is, even if the, these large cloud providers solve the problem for you, it's still a matter of do you go adopt it? And to the you know the ninety three percent of instances out there that still don't use the new metadata service, I think I think y'all at Netflix have talked about didn't y'all write a tool to like really help make it easier to deploy? And I think other other companies did as well. But the people using the cloud that don't know about it are going to continue to just do whatever defaults get deployed. You know, forever be riddled by this. Yeah, but I think to some extent, I would like to put some responsibility in people owning infrastructure. And it's not just the cloud, right? Or the clouds or however we speak of them now, uh, but any sort of core like internet infrastructure in general. And I think security requirements broadly, because to your point, most users, most small businesses will not adapt any of these new security features, even when they become available to them. So then as the owner of the infrastructure is shouldn't there be a responsibility onto them to push some of these updates and ensure to maintain some level of security 100% yep yeah and then there's the the vendors too so scott piper has a a wall of shame for basically vendors that don't support the new metadata service and so the, you know this is good like public pressure to to cause folks to upgrade or whatever but cloud provider has to support it then people have to do migrations, then vendors have to support it. So there's this very long tail, even once you get aggressive with it. So once Amazon got serious, that was day zero. And then from now, you know, whatever, it's five years later and we still don't have it 
widely supported. At least having something though is better. Cause I remember, you know, early in the segment days, we were obviously friends with the Netflix folks and we were just like trying to build some stuff ourselves. And it was like, we were trying to do something at the container networking layer to prevent containers from reaching out to the service. And it was really not the type of thing that we wanted to be spending engineering resources on. So I think, I mean, the biggest problem in my mind still is just like the, the slowness to do anything. And yes, I ideally like this would just be done like default and perfect and nobody would even have to think about any of this stuff. But the fact that they dragged their feet for so long for even providing something that companies that wanted to fix this problem, like that is, is really bad in my opinion. All right, let's move on. Uh, Magoo has a write-up on the Joe Sullivan stuff. We've talked about this for the last couple of episodes, uh, but Magoo, for those that don't know, uh, he's an awesome security person. He writes a thing called Startup Security, which helps startups understand security. He does a ton of work in quantitative risk analysis, which is really worth reading about. And he also has Bad Things Daily, which is a Twitter handle that gives you bad things daily that you can go in tabletop. Uh, but he really, like he read through all the transcripts for court and did a ton of work and summarized it really nicely in a post that everybody should, should read. Uh, I read his post a couple of times. I really liked it. Here's some key things that I got from it. Uh, one, he said, you should define what un unauthorized access means. Uh, this kind of seems obvious now, but yeah, definitely, you know, companies struggle with crisp definitions of things. So you shouldn't have any question of like, oh, is this a legitimate bug bounty person or is this an attack? That should be a clear definition that you have. Uh, you should have some kind of an outside counsel involved for incidents. So your in-house counsel may have some kind of bad incentive to not classify something as a breach when maybe you should. So above a certain threshold, you should involve outside counsel and you should have those folks identified and know what their roles are in advance. You should set up your bounty payout tables to make it so that you can pay for extreme events. So a lot of folks max out at some really low number, and that's going to make it so that you really can't pay what you should for a really extreme disclosure. So up those and then air towards disclosure, uh, disclose the near misses too. So it shouldn't just be like, oh, we had this horrible breach and that's the only time you hear about something in the news, but you should also hear about it uh, when there's a narrow, narrow miss, something that you actually caught or caught earlier or anything like that. He also went into the attack vector bits. Um, so I just got, have a few notes from that. The 2014 breach was a credential for a data analysis script that, that was leaked in GitHub. And then that was used to exfil objects from S3. Those contain database prunes. Database prunes are supposed to be clean. So they're supposed to have all sensitive data scrubbed out, but the pruning was ineffective. And so that re uh, resulted in 50K driver's licenses and names being leaked. My takeaway from this is that redacting sensitive data at scale is very hard. Anytime we're saying like, yeah, we'll just redact the information out of the logs or whatever, we're probably going to miss stuff. And then the 2016 breach, that was um, basically they had this giant list of 10 million usernames and passwords that somebody had collected. And then they used a contractor from Upwork to write a script that would go and hit GitHub and try all of them. And then they took all of the, yes, this works results and then matched that to top sites on the internet and found Uber. They ended up with 13 working logins for GitHub. And then they were they went in there and they looked for credentials for S3. They found some, uh, and then they used a tool called S3 Browser to actually look at the buckets that the credentials were for. They discovered some encrypted backups, but the encrypted backups weren't accessible to them because they didn't have the key. They handed that over to somebody else. That other person found an interesting object 
And the interesting object ended up being this giant uh, 50 million record database that was unencrypted. And then there was a whole bunch of stuff in there about attribution, but I'll, I'll pause. Like, I think there's a lot of information in here. What did you all think about it? I'd love to get everyone's take or at least one person's take on how likely we think the ability for companies to blog about near misses is like, I agree that would be very interesting, but I just don't really see that being something that companies are willing to do. Like I, as somebody who's blogged a little bit on behalf of segment, like even getting good stuff approved can be challenging, um, especially at a big company. And I, I just don't see myself being able to be like, Oh yeah, we caught this crazy stuff. And like, could have been really bad, but it wasn't. And we did a good job. Like, I, I just don't know how, how realistic that is. That's yeah, uh, I that... agree with that. I say, I think the near misses, especially if you're a public company, media spins things, takes things out of context. And uh, blogging about a near miss is like messing with potential stock valuation going down, you know, things that people just don't understand. And so they're like, oh my God, another thing with LastPass, let me dump the stock. So my bet is no one would do it. But really that's marketing for your security team. If you had a, a near miss, then things in your security process were working versus a company that doesn't talk about any of this but stuff. Does that matter just... for Uber? Like people aren't taking an Uber because they think their security team's good. Well, but, but then the counterpoint <laughs> is that if the security team's not good, then they're not going to not take the Uber either. So you, in that sense, you could argue that security of Uber doesn't matter at all. But I think for folks that are paying attention and do make decisions based on that, a near miss is actually a positive to your brand. But I, I do think that Will has a point though. I think I think for public companies, I think it is highly problematic because things will be taken out of context and then the stock will tank, right? Like that's the impact. It's not the end user just making decisions. That's not really how that works anymore. Like the stock market impact isn't really that. And so I think it's more about the speculation of the value of the company. And if you have a lot of regulatory risk associated with your brand, I think that has impact. And I, I think people will avoid it. That's sad. Especially if it's like not even a near miss, but you're talking about like the, you know, we, we made a mistake and like, imagine if Facebook sends out notifications when, whenever they, oh, we found your password is logged in clear text are bad. Like I know everyone here has probably gotten that email before. They don't go blog about it, but even if they did, I mean, it, that would for sure get picked up by the media and I think spun, but like the near misses are, are cool. Cause like, okay, we didn't actually have something that happened, but if you're talking about even the small things like, Oh, you know, one customer's system was accessed on, by an unauthorized internal person or external party or whatever. It still calls into question like, Oh, especially if you're a B2B company, like, Oh, should we actually go with this? Like, look at all these little ones. Just wait for the big one to come. And I think, I think sensationalist media isn't set up to be um, sort of objective in that reporting either. I don't think a story, especially if it's published, like if, if Uber goes out and publishes, like, look at this near miss, look how great our security team did. Like the spin on that is they didn't have these controls in the first place. So Uber is patching like lightweight vulnerabilities or whatever. Like it's, it's, it's going to be told in a way that sells news and ad space. Maybe it's like a tech blog post. So there's there's tech blog, you know, like Netflix has a bunch of tech blog posts and other companies do too. So maybe it's that. It's like, you know, here's something that could have been bad that wasn't because we were able to do all this good security work. I think there you're like, you're you're blogging about it to attract talent more so than like try to get someone to purchase your product or something like that. That would be my take For of sure. why you would like the motivation behind it. But I think as someone that runs an incident response team, um, like it's important to the point of Magoo 
having clear expectations or clear outlines of when do you communicate publicly, who's involved, what is the communication process, like when would you actually go publish something publicly versus not, or when do you notify a customer? And so like internally at, at HashCorp, we have all those things defined. Like severity one is X to X, severity two is X to X, and all those have different communication plans and outcomes that we expect to do every time we hit that. And it's not just a matter of like, oh, today we feel like telling the public. It's no, it's that's what's in our plan. That's what we communicate to customers if they ask to look at it. And that's what you should just always do. Cause then you don't have the, the you know, the perceived problem of like, oh, well, internal counsel decided not to, to say something here. Where if they would have gone with external counsel, they would have said, yeah, it's just, well, what does our plan say? Well, the plan says that we should do it. Well, let's go do it. And we'll yeah. deal with, you know, hey, marketing, FYI, or PR, we're about to. <laughs> We're about to say that X, you know, get ready. But I would also say that all of those criteria should be made in agreement with your counsel, but whether oh, it be external or internal, right? I think most of what I read in, in, in this article as well is, you know, you, you have to, you have to involve them uh, more than you might think, but there is also, and I've talked to our legal counsel quite a lot about this. There is a risk in involving them all the time. Uh, because then, uh, from like a legal perspective, you sort of muddy the water and then it doesn't like you, you've made everything an incident in a way, which then makes it private and for its attorney privileged. And that can become incredibly problematic as well from a legal perspective. So I think you need to be very clear in what the, the regulation says and how you apply that internally. And if you have these rules, they have to be objective because one problem is, is like, you know, you have all of this stuff, you know, like levels one through four, there's no disclosure of anything. And then it's like level five, we're doing like customer emails and the news story and all of this stuff. Then there's an intense pressure to keep something at level four if it's on the border. And so then you get into this gamesmanship type stuff. Yeah. The one thing that really stood out in this, and we talked about this a little bit last time is the structure and roles and like obligations were incredibly confusing. And even reading Magoo's write-up, which I think generally was very well written. And I appreciate the months of time he put into this and his own money getting the court transcripts. But like, even with his very solid writing skills, I was just like, I do not understand (laughs) this section where it's talking about like all the different relationships between like who is supposed to be doing what. But I did find the, the attribution part really interesting. So if you're somebody who, you know, is on a detection response team and wants to read through all the, like how they unveiled who the attackers were. I thought that part was uh, really, really interesting and incredibly well-written. Yeah. So quick summary on that. So what they did was they tried to get attackers to sign up for a hacker one account with their actual identity. And they tried to get them to sign an NDA with their actual identity. The attacker used a false identity for both. So they didn't fall for it, but that did reveal an IP. The IP was tied to a VPS service. The VPS service was being used to host yet another VPS service. So they went to that, the second VPS service and said, Hey, like, give us the server. They handed over the server. And then within that, they got an email address. Uh, that email address was found in a data breach, uh, or um, it was a hacker forum where that, that email address had asked uh, for somebody else to crack a hash for them. So that person cracked the hash and then there was a payment. And they saw the payment on the blockchain with the email address that they found from the VPS. And then the wallet address was tied to an account where there was a personal identity. So it was just, you know, it was like five steps, but they finally got there. It was just, it was really interesting to read how all of that went down. I definitely recommend everyone read this. 
Yeah. If you're looking through Magoo's article and don't want to read the whole thing, look for the attribution section for that last part. All right, Leaf, last story. Cool. This last one is about scammers scamming scammers. I thought this was a fun one to, to end the episode on. Yeah. There, apparently there's a lot of people trying to scam people that are scamming other people. And a lot of them are kind of what you'd expect. It's, you know, buyers not paying or sellers not providing what they were paid for. Sometimes it's bogus data or sometimes it's exploits that don't work. There were a couple fun ones in here though. Um, one was about a user that bought a fake copy of an NFT focused game and their intent was to use it to steal other people's crypto. But then the seller who wrote the, you know, backdoored version of this game ended up just stealing the crypto themselves, which I guess is in some ways incredibly predictable. It's like you paid someone and you gave them the idea of what you wanted to do. And they're like, oh yeah, that sounds good. I can just do this. And then they made you, uh, you know, distribute it to everyone. So that, I thought that one was, was pretty funny. There was another one. This one was pretty serious. It was somebody that uh, had developed a Windows kernel exploit and they were supposed to get paid 130 grand, which you know, quite a lot of money. And the person just took the exploit and didn't pay him. So I guess there is, uh, you know, definitely some incentive to just go through bug crowd or, you know, hacker one or, you know, whoever's hosting Microsoft's bounty. But yeah, I remember when I worked at bug crowd Casey brought up all the, that's that one of the founders brought up all the time, like, Hey, some people just don't really want to deal with this underworld of selling exploits. Like there's plenty of people that would rather just you know, have a pretty much guaranteed payment from, from Microsoft and not worry about the FBI. And yeah, it, that would suck to be like, oh yeah, I'm about to make 130 large. And then it's, nope, somebody took it. Yeah, that stuff's really interesting. I thought, Do any of y'all ever respond to the like scam texts that you get, like the CEO texts and mess with the scammers trying to scam me? I have done that. It's really fun. <laughs> I don't want them to spend more time on me. So I just pretend I don't exist. Um, you know, I always get the text and I'm, I'm like, are they just wanting to know, is this number actually legit to a cell phone or like is responding bad? It's the same thing with the scam calls. Like I want to answer and be like, remove me from your list. But then I'm like, well, then they know that the number is actually active and someone's monitoring. It. I think, yeah, I think you just ignore. Uh, one, time I, one time I went back and forth for like an hour and a half over messages with one of them and they tried to recruit me. They were like, Hey, like you basically doing this, you can make like a hundred K a year and it's not that hard. Um, so and like told me how it all works. So yeah, at the end, yeah. there's that side cash you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. There it is. My side hustle. One of the takeaways from this that, um, seemed, uh, was not necessarily something I would have thought of, but I guess makes sense is a lot of the people that complain about getting scammed reveal information about themselves. And so this is just a treasure trove for law enforcement to figure out who these people are because, uh, you know, they're like, oh, a lot of these people generally have kind of good OPSEC. And then they complain that they got ripped off and they include a screenshot that has like, you know, their email address or their handle that they use in another capacity. And then they're able to say, oh, okay, like this handle on this forum is the same as this handle on this other forum. And that just like was not something I, I would have thought about, but I, I guess it makes a lot of sense. Let's do a game. So Let's we're going to, we're going to play vendor or chat GPT. So I have five prompts for you. In, uh, in each prompt, I will list a phrase and then another phrase. And your goal for the three of you is to guess which one is a legitimate vendor and which one is chat GPT. And whoever scores the most points wins fictional prize. Sounds good? All right. Awesome. So the first one is 
The first phrase is autopilot for all of your passwords. And the second phrase is secure your passwords, secure your peace of mind. How do we, how do we vote? Uh, well, which one do you think is chat GPT? Second one. Secure your password, secure your peace of mind. Okay. Anna. Yep. Same. Leaf. I'm going to buck the trend. I think chat GPT wrote the first one. Autopilots for all of your passwords is LastPass and secure your password, secure your peace of mind is OpenAI. Okay. All right. So Anna and Will, you have one point each. Okay. Next one. Faster outcomes, better security. That's the first one. And the second is the key to protecting your digital assets in the cloud. Okay. Will, who's, who's, uh, who's chat GPT? Second one. Anna. I, I so badly want the first one to not be real because it is so dumb. Um, God. There goes our uh, future sponsorship from whoever this vendor is. I'm gonna say I'm gonna say the first one because I want it to be fake. Yeah, I'm going with Anna. I think the first one's fake. Faster outcomes, better security is lace work. And the key to protecting digital assets in the cloud is open AI. All right, Will, you got two. Anna, you have one, leave here at zero. All right, next one. Dynamic security starts with static analysis. And the second one is protecting the entire software lifecycle, Will's not Googling. just after Look code is him. built. Will's Googling. <laughs> I'm not. I'm here. Protecting the Same entire book. software lifecycle, not just after code is built. And the first one is chat to PT. Yep, number one. Uh, no, I'm going to... First one is is a vendor. Oh, now you're Googling. I see you typing. Look, look at his eyes. He's going back and forth. He's searching real quick. No. Protecting the entire software lifecycle, not just after code is built, is Veracode. And dynamic security starts with static analysis, open AI. So will you have three? For three. Yeah, Ana, you have two. Leaf, you got zero. All right. So the first phrase is, see your attack surface like an attacker would. And the second is, scan and secure your cloud infrastructure with our powerful vulnerability management solution. Which one's chat GPT? I'm going real, real on the first one. Yeah. Chat GPT. Yeah, second. Second is, okay. So will you say second is chat GPT? Yeah. Everyone said that. Okay. Yep. You're all right. So see your attack surface like an attacker would as Qualys. So three, two, and zero. I got one. Or, yeah. Four, four, three, and one. Yeah. That's what I mean. All right. Last one. Effortless security for your cloud infrastructure from development to deployment. And the second one... Sleep? The second one is it's easier to stay secure if you start secure. The second one can be real. The second one can be real. (laughs) Yeah, the second one is definitely, I feel like it's also a vendor, but I got to say chat GPT on the I think the second one's a vendor. I think the first one's chat GPT. It's easier to stay secure if you start secure as resourcely. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Will wins. Yes. Will, you're pro at this. There's there's got to be some kind of a job for this. What does this say about Will? Does this mean he's like just actually reading all the vendor emails he gets? Super deep in vendors. It's all it's where I spend all my time. What, what you don't know is every time you do a search in chat GPT, I get a text message and I'm responding feverishly. You, you hacked his well, computer so you could find the research he was doing for the game so you could win. No, I just assume that using Mechanical Turks is a lot less expensive than all the cloud computing that OpenAI is now using for ChatGPT. That was definitely Googling, for sure. N- nobody goes five for zero. But during the episode, I went on to ChatGPT, funny enough, and I said, write a test attack. I said, write a test message 
from a CEO asking for someone to let them know they received it. And so they said, Dear employee, I hope this message finds you well. I just want to send a quick note to confirm that you received this message. Please let me know as soon as possible if you were able to receive it. Thank you, CEO. What CEO has that much time to repeat no. themselves five times? <laughs> no, no, no CEO well, is that nice. <laughs> but also, well, dear employee. <laughs> yeah. That's also like uh, what I was using for this as well as like, okay, which is the longest answer? Because that's likely chat. That's true. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. All right, that's a wrap. I don't know if I overestimated chat GPT or underestimated vendors. I know. Yeah, Leaf's definitely the least jaded. Yeah, and and Leaf definitely, or was it? Yeah, no, which, yeah, we're definitely never getting a sponsorship from Lightsburg. Is that right? Is that the one on the side of the I don't want it to be real. <laughs> well, there's an option. Yeah, you can you can swap all your stuff out for chat GPT stuff. There you go. All right. This is good. Happy new year. See you all next time. Everybody, please subscribe. If you're not subscribed to 404, please do. Uh, We love seeing you all every month. Have a good one. Follow us on Twitter. Happy new year.